glad to be with you again and I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17, we'll look at the verses 1 uh, through 19. We're looking at the parables of Jesus, particularly under the theme of the windows into God's kingdom. You know, we're trying to help all of us peek into God's kingdom through the window, so to speak, and learn valuable lessons in terms not only of having faith, but developing faith and living out faith, uh, being part of a faith community that not only celebrates that the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, but that it's also coming through the work of the church around the world. And I, I just read, for example, in, in your bulletin, you know, your food grains bank offering you know, gets multiplied so that $200,000 um, gets given for the purpose of relieving hungry, the hungry. And, and that's advancing the kingdom. And so we, we peek through the windows and we advance the kingdom. The Gospels help us to understand the kingdom and Jesus teaches his disciples to understand the kingdom. And that's where the challenge for us comes this morning. You'll notice in Luke chapter 17 and verse 1 that Jesus said to his disciples. He is speaking to those who are his followers. Now, there are basically three groups of people who are following Jesus here. There is the crowd. That is uh, the, the humanity all around him who was rather enchanted by his presence and his authority, but also his power. People could touch his robe in faith, and they would be healed. And he spoke about the coming of the kingdom, and they heard a message that said, he's going to boot out the Romans, and that's good news. So there's that large crowd, and on uh, what we call Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, they also gathered but now they had turned against him, and they cried out, crucify him. There's another group of people. Those are the Pharisees. These are the teachers, the, what we might term the religious elite. The people who are constantly criticizing him about his conduct and about the conduct of his disciples who eat grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. And Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs of iniquity. And they aren't generally pleased with that label. And they're looking for an opportunity to trip him up. And then there's the third group. And that third group are the 12 disciples and others who are also devoted followers of Jesus. And that third group is also us. People who have gathered to worship, people who have surrendered their lives, people who sing the songs that sing, Hallelujah, God has set forth his grace on me. And it's to this group of people that these words are specifically addressed. And so let us read from the word of God. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. 
It would be better for them to be thrown to the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So, also, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and as he was going into a village, uh, uh, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten healed, cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one to return to pray, give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. So we're peeking through the windows into God's kingdom, trying to understand our calling, our role. Suppose someone would come to say to you, you have to grow in humility. You have to grow in humility. What would you do? How would you respond? Would you start working harder at being humble? Putting so much effort into it that you begin to draw attention to yourself and begin to be qualified to write a book. Humility. How I achieved it. That's a bit the reverse of what is intended, one thinks. But how do you develop humility? Well, it, it is hinged, I believe, very much to the development of an attitude, the development of an understanding of who you are and what you are called to do and how you are called to live and how you are called to be. Recall the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 said that Jesus emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Now, when Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of all the uh, rights and privileges and power, well, not powers, but rights and privileges that came with being divine, that came with being the Son of God. He, he, he was no longer enthroned in heaven, but he took on human flesh and he dwelt amongst us and he was subject uh, 
to hunger. And he was subject to weariness. And he was subject to misunderstanding. He was subject to some frustration. Personally, I'm reading in the Gospel of Mark right now from my devotions, and this morning I ran across where Jesus was saying to his disciples, don't you get it yet? Don't you get it yet? This whole idea of, you know, you try so hard to explain things to people, and there just seems to be barriers. And Jesus emptied himself. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. That is, he dedicated himself to do good to others for their well-being and to do good for the purpose of his Father in heaven for the coming of God's will and desire in this world. In other words, Jesus dedicated himself to work, to effort, to emptying himself and being the form of a servant. And that develops an attitude that is an attitude towards striving. In a copy of the banner, the Christian Reform magazine, in 2016, the actor Denzel Washington was quoted in an article in the banner that said, that he was quoted saying, if you have a bad attitude, it is like having a flat tire on your car. Unless you change it, you are not going to go very far. So we needed to be dedicated to attitude, change, and transformation. In the same banner of 2016, Mary Holtz, who is the chaplain at Calvin University, says that, said in an article that there are lots of workshops and opportunities for people to develop an understanding of how to lead, how to influence people in a certain direction. But he says, it's, she said, it is interesting to note that there are hardly any conferences that teach people on how to follow, on how to fulfill the first commandment of Jesus when he saw Peter and James and John and the others, and when he said, now follow me. Follow me. Follow me who has emptied himself and has taken upon himself a form of a servant. And so we need to take a look at this idea of following, and Jesus addresses the words we read this morning to us, to disciples, to people who are disciplined, to people who listen and who strive to obey, who strive to follow, who strive to honor, who strive to become what they are already redeemed to be. In one of his books, Calvin professor Gordon Spikeman, who is now passed into glory, said that the theme, the challenge of a Christian is to strive to become what you or what I already are or am. And we read that this morning as we read from the Heidelberg Catechism, just as if I've never sinned nor been a sinner. 
That's the reality, the benefit of having faith in Jesus Christ. We are redeemed, but now we have to strive to become what we are. And so Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to me, and he says to you, and to all of us who are listening, either here or on live stream, he says to us, recognize that stumbling blocks are sure to come. They are sure to come in this world. This world is filled with challenges and difficulties because this world is filled with people and people have problems that arise out of the core of their being. In Mark chapter 17, or 7, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then notice the whole list of them. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Well, he says that in the context, and then Luke says at the, same t- at the same time, that stumbling comes, it is inevitable that it is to come, but that particularly those who are the little ones, those who are childlike in faith, not children, but childlike in the faith, who haven't yet grown and matured and developed calluses to resist pain and influence that way. We have to be careful about those people. So he says, the reality is is that we are all faced with stumbling blocks. We all have to recognize what's in our own heart. We all have to become what we already are, cleansed, renewed, redeemed in Jesus Christ. But... We also have to be very, very careful that we do not cause other little ones to stumble. He says, woe to you. So I built a little illustration. You know, whole idea, very simple trap. If you do that and capture a person immature in faith inside of the trap of lust, or greed, or envy, or slander, or lewdness, or folly, or sexual immorality, or adultery. Just the whole list that Jesus has in Mark chapter 7, and it's also in the other Gospels, then you trap a person, like you might trap a cat or a raccoon, and want to move that uh, captive elsewhere. But if you capture an immature person in the faith, Jesus says it'd be better for you to take a deep swim with a millstone around your neck. So be careful how you conduct yourself. I mean, his words are really quite uh, blunt out of uh, Luke chapter 17, and we should really pay attention to that. So watch yourselves, he says. Remember, this is our Lord speaking to us. Watch yourselves in terms of how you conduct yourselves, lest you cause someone immature in faith to stumble.
And then he goes on. He says, we live in a world filled with brokenness and people will sin against you. People will cause you to get angry. People will cause you to be jealous. People will raise up a sense of lust or greed within you. People will slander you. What do you do? Well, you become what you are. In Jesus Christ, you become a mature discipler, a mature reflector, teacher of God's grace. You rebuke them. You correct them. You say, that is not how we in Christ should conduct ourselves. And if your rebuke works, and the person comes and says, I'm sorry, forgive them. Only to have that person do it all over again. Only to need a rebuke. Only to have that person repent. What do you have to do? Forgive them. Seven times. And elsewhere, we know that Peter asked, well, Lord, if somebody sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And, Je and he says seven times, and then Jesus says, no, 70 times, seven times, and that becomes nine, uh, 490 times, and by that time, it's a habit. By that time, it's a habit. And you know that you need to be forgiving. Why? Because in Christ... We are forgiven because all of us have sin that comes out of the heart. And while we have a new heart, that new heart also continues to need to grow and to mature and to strive to become what it already is by the grace of God. Then notice the response. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Well, what does that mean? Increase our faith. Well, I think faith can be thought of with three H's. The head, the heart, the hands. Increase what's in our head. Increase our knowledge. And you'd say, well, okay, what do I need to grow in? Well, maybe our knowledge about the Scriptures, that it is the inspired Word of God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting and training in righteousness, profitable to help us to become what we already are. Or, or perhaps it's important for us to learn in our heads about the construct of the Trinity, as mysterious as it is, that there is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are of the same essence. They are divine. My granddaughter would say, but that doesn't make any sense. And then I say, well, yeah, it is a bit of a mystery. And she says, Granddad, you could do better than that. <laughs> okay. That's true. So I use illustrations, eggs, you know, the shell, the yolk, and the white. One egg, three different portions, but not of the same essence, see? Oh. 
Then I will use another illustration, which I think works better. Imagine taking a book, a hardcover book. It's got three types of papers. It's got the dust cover, the hardcover, and the pages, the guts of the book. Same essence, paper. Three different functions. The dust cover keeps it all shiny and nice. The hardcover keeps it together. The book gives us its contents. The problem is, the three book pieces of paper don't converse with each other. They're all dead. So that doesn't work perfectly either. Nothing works perfectly. Because God is one. There is no one, no, nothing like him. So at a moment you have to say, in my head, I have to accept it's a bit of a mystery. And in eternity, we'll understand it a little bit better, maybe. And you can just fill in the blanks. You know, we have to talk about Jesus, and we have to talk about the Holy Spirit and its ministry, and talk about the ministry of the church and the relationship of church to kingdom. We, we can talk so many things and learn so many things that our head sometimes threatens to explode. Increase our faith. Increase what's in our head. But also increase what's in our heart. Our emotional response. The world's longest distance is between here and here. And very often the phone rings at 3 o'clock in the morning. Because things that you haven't dealt with up here, like forgiving, suddenly come into your heart and saying, oh yeah, I have to take responsibility for that slanderous, gossiping word that I said. And then you lie awake. And you begin to have a... Maybe you don't, but I do. You begin to imagine in your con mind how that conversation might go. Have you ever tried to construct a conversation in your head with somebody else? It never works out quite the way you construct it. But the reality is that at some point you need to answer that phone. At some point you need to deal with that conscious reality. Lord, increase my emotional response in my heart. Increase my joy. Increase my, my, my sense of celebration. Increase my sense of thankfulness. And then you think about hands. The hands take the scriptures and help us to learn more about themselves and about God and the kingdom and us and the church and all that sort of stuff. And that our hands take up the tools that make a difference. When, when, when I drove into the driveway this morning, I went, oh, because of all the tulips. Somebody's hands did that. And we should praise God for hands like that. Right? Somebody acted and, and made a difference. And, and that's what happens. And so the disciples who are confronted by the challenge of Jesus, who says, well, when somebody sins against you and says, I'm sorry, I repent, forgive them, and forgive them seven times, and, well, as a matter of fact, just make a habit of forgiving them. And the disciples say, increase our faith. Increase what's in our heads. Increase what's in our hearts. And increase what we do with our hands. 
And notice that Jesus rebukes them. He says, you want me to increase everything, but you already have faith like a mustard seed, and if you would only act on it, you could just simply say to this mulberry bush, be taken up and planted in the ocean, and it would happen. He rebukes them. Because they haven't acted on their faith that already exists. They think it just has to be better and stronger before they can get up out of their seat and up out of their pew and up out of wherever to go to wherever they have to go and forgive someone or rebuke someone or accept forgiveness from someone. Jesus rebukes them because they want something to grow and he says, but if only you recognize this little faith and act on it, it will grow. I remember when I first came to understand the impact of that, because my first reaction was, yeah, I understand, Lord, increase my faith. And then he says, you already have faith. Act on it. And then you'll see the result of it. And I had to step back. And I had to recognize that I was looking for an excuse rather than looking for an opportunity. I was, I was already able to be a servant. I was now asked to serve. Oh. And then he drives it all home with this little word, suppose. Suppose you had a servant. He invites you now to think. To think about a situation where you are a master and you have servants. But clarify this for yourself now. The servant is a slave. Not, not a servant who gets paid an hourly wage or an annual salary. This person is a slave. Some people have said we can use this scripture passage to have Jesus sort of enforce the idea that slavery is acceptable. No, that's not the way God intended. Sin has made slavery a reality, but Jesus is reflecting what's going on in his culture and he's making it a teaching point in a teaching moment. Suppose one of you has a servant. That servant's been out in the field plowing all day or tending sheep all day and now at the end of the day comes in. Do you suppose the master would say, sit down and I will serve you supper? And we would all like to say, yeah, that's, that's what we suppose. Because, you know, we know that people who have sweated and worked hard in the day deserve a good meal and a good break. And so, yes, this is what a master would do. We would want to say yes. But their culture would say, no, no. No, you're a slave. The master will say to you, uh, you still have to prepare my supper and you still have it served to serve it to me, and when you have served it to me, then you have to clean up, and then you can go down in the kitchen and eat what's left over. 
You think, ooh, that doesn't sound very nice. Doesn't sound very nice. I, I grew up on a farm, and you know, we were, just face it, we were poor farmers. So uh, we didn't have all the machinery we needed uh, to harvest the corn and the wheat when, or the grain when it had to be harvested. So custom workers would come in. And I kid you not, it was the best meals of the year. Because my sister would stay home from work and uh, my mother and her would prepare uh, a dinner that, you know, the harvesters would come in and, and they would break bread with us. And my mother and my sister went all out. And I got to stay home from school because, you know, somebody had to be around, you know, to help be the gopher. And it was the greatest meal of the year. Wow. And then it came again with corn harvest. Any of you had that experience? Right? It was just, just outstanding. Not in this culture. It would be expected that these guys would eat on their own and then they would come and serve the master. And at the end of the day, they would eat the last meal of the day and probably fall asleep over their dinner. Suppose. And Jesus says, well, you know, recognize that these servants have just simply done what was expected of them. They humbled themselves. They did their duty. And Jesus is saying, it's not about your honor as you follow me. It is about the kingdom of my Father. Because we're all here to serve our God. It is not about your position. It is not about your privilege. It is not about your power. It is not about your possessions. It is about what you can offer with your hands, out of your heart, out of the understanding in your head that you are a servant of God. That's pretty humbling. And then it's wound up with a story. Jesus and his disciples are heading towards Jerusalem. They're walking between Galilee and Samaria. And ten lepers come and they call out for attention. And Jesus just simply says, well, just go your, do, do your duty. Go show yourself to the priests. And as they are going, they're looking at each other and their hands change. And their faces change. Their lips change. Their noses change. By the way, if you happen to have in the church library a book by Philip Yancey that he writes on behalf of the Dr. Paul Brand entitled The Gift Nobody Wants, make sure you get it before anybody else gets it today and read it. Because it tells about the gift nobody wants, namely the gift of pain, and how important that is. Because lepers sense no pain, and as a result of that, they wear out the bottoms of their feet. They can lose their fingers because they don't feel anything that would cause them to bind it up. 
It's just a, rem it's a, a remarkably inspiring book. The gift nobody wants. But these ten are walking along and they look at each other and everything is changing. They are cleansed. They're renewed. They are restored to community. They can go home. They can touch their children. They can go back to the temple. They can worship. They can be part of a community again. And nine walk on. And one turns around and comes back to Jesus and says, thanks. His attitude is acknowledged by Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, but weren't there ten? What happened to the other nine? <laughs> They're just simply living life. They're ignoring who had served them and weren't ready to serve him in return. Their attitude was self-centered. They had no servant heart. Which makes me then reflect on my attitude. And I will ask you to do the same. How is your servant heart? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we pray that you would help us to be your servants. Help us to recognize that Christ is present here, that he has healed our wounds, cleansed our, our, our uh, brokenness. We are here to lift up holy hands and holy hearts and to present holy lives, becoming what we already are in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that each one of us may today be empowered to become a servant, to empty ourselves, and to reach out to make a difference in the lives of others, humbly and thankfully in the name of Jesus, who has made such a tremendous difference in our own lives. So hear our prayer and bless us on our journey. We humbly ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.